You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. If you were here last week, a buddy of mine, Chris Bishop, was here, college roommate, and he shared with us, he reminded us that people need the gospel because they are spiritually dead, and it is God that makes them alive. Titled his message, From Death to Life, a message that was a uh, really a tremendous introduction to our message today in the book of Romans. The idea that God can take a spiritual corpse and give them spiritual life is, as Chris said, a, a miraculous thing. So let's look at Romans uh, chapter 10. Uh, really, we're going to be looking at verses 14 and, and 15 here. But let's just back up and, and start reading in, in verse 11. So if you would stand with me as we, as we honor the reading of God's word together. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we ask for your help. Lord, we come to a text in, in Romans that is extremely important, that has tremendous implications for life and ministry. Lord, and we pray that you send your spirit to lead us and guide us into truth. That what happens here this morning points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That his name was be would be exalted. That what we take away from this would be truth. Lord, we pray that you guide us. That you work. That the glory here would be yours and yours alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. So as we transition from Ezekiel 37 and now turn back specifically to the book of Romans, we must remember that we have spent a considerable amount of time showing both the, the corrupt nature of humanity 
and our inability to remedy that situation so that if there is to be any rescue from our deserved punishment from God's justice, that will be because of God's grace and mercy toward us. Not any righteousness that we have on our own that we can muster up for there is no way for us to earn or merit our own right standing before God. To even complicate matters here, some would suggest that there is no way that we can earn a right standing before God on our own, but perhaps we can with God's help. That he and I could, could work together to achieve that. That he, we can be justified before God because he and I are working together and achieve a justified state. This is really a popular view, more popular than perhaps we think. And the reason for that is that we eagerly admit that we can never be saved apart from God's grace. And for many in this camp, they would say, I'm saved by God alone apart from works. A statement that places the person squarely in the orthodox or right doctrine category, but when pressed, they'll say things that seem to contradict that. Of course, this view isn't a new view. The church has struggled with this for centuries. For instance, Plagius in the 5th century taught that a person could earn salvation apart from the grace of God. Clearly, crossing the orthodox heresy line into the land of heresy. But it wasn't long before somebody came along and offered a watered-down version of Pelagius' view. This was Cassian of Marcellus in the 5th century. And it was known as, very accurately, semi-Pelagianism. Of course, Many people that fall into the semi-plagiast camp don't wear that label as a badge of honor because not not many people want to be that closely associated with with heresy. It would be like saying, well, I'm I'm a Uh, semi-atheist, semi-universalist. Or to state it positively, I'm a semi-Trinitarian. To be semi-Trinitarian would call into question Everything right that we believe about the Trinity. I mean, yeah, sort of. Sort of. What does that mean? Semi-Pelagianism would suggest that the sinner has the ability to initiate a relationship with God, that we on our own seek out God, and then God's grace would be a response to what we have done. God's grace, then, is a response to a person's effort. A doctrine which radically redefines what grace is. R.C. Sproul says that as Christians, we are naturally inclined to a form of semi-Pelagianism because we want to be in control of our own destiny. We want the reins, so to speak. Now, This view, semi-Pelagianism, was condemned, by the way, also. Pelagianism was condemned. Uh, Semi-Pelagianism was condemned at the Council of Orange in 529. But even over and above that, 
The scriptures here are very clear that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2. Dead people don't seek after God. We don't, dead people don't initiate relationships with God. God initiates relationships with dead people and quickens them and resurrects them and makes them alive. Also, we read in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel. It is God who both initiates and accomplishes the conversion of the sinner. It is God who removes the veil and allows the person to see the truth of the gospel. The book of Romans has made this abundantly clear that the only hero in our story of redemption is God himself. The first chapters of the book paint a grave picture of a harsh reality. That we are desperately wicked. And our only hope for salvation rests solely in the hands of God. Of course, we've seen this in Romans 8 and 9, that God's plan of salvation rests on His mercy alone towards sinners that deserve only His justice, which is the wrath of God against those who continually practice iniquity. But then in Romans chapter 10, Paul turns to the statement that he's made at the onset of the book, on the onset of Romans chapter 9, which is that he is greatly concerned for his people. The physical nation of Israel, that he greatly desires them to be saved. And for them to be saved, they must see Christ Jesus for who he is. The one who accomplished what they could not. He being perfectly righteous, righteous, fulfilled the law for them. And through faith in Jesus Christ, then they could be made right with God. Not because of their own goodness and merit, because of the merit of Jesus Christ bestowed on them in faith. Paul longs for them to be saved and therefore pleads with God to save them out of a love for them. Paul recognizes that their salvation rests in the hands of God. In Romans 10, then, Paul returns to the fact that those who are justified by God, those who are justified by God are the ones who place their faith and trust in Christ. Yes, God is responsible. He's the only hero. But yet, it is because of God's mercy in regeneration toward the sinner that they respond to Him in faith. So our response to what God has done in a heart, giving us a new heart, making us alive, being born again, all of these images of regeneration, our response then to what God has done in our life is placing our faith and trust in Him. Now the question arises, in the minds of some, most, what about evangelism? What about missions? If God is the only hero, if everything that we've said here is true and people are saved solely because of the mercy of God, 
I mean, think about this. In fact, we are told in Romans 9 that salvation rests not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then God has mercy on who He has mercy, and He hardens whomever He wills. That's Romans 9. The question then is, why do we evangelize? Why do we send missionaries out? It's actually a good question in a way, because there is an apparent contradiction here. If God is 100% responsible for salvation, then won't the elect get saved regardless? Then, on the other side, why in the world would the Bible tell us to go and, and evangelize? Why would we, should we go into all of the world? To get around that contradiction, some have lessened the doctrines put forth in Romans here and moved closer to a semi-Pelagian position where we work with God to accomplish salvation. And if we work with God then and we cooperate together, then that supposedly makes sense of all of this. I think what's wrong with the, the question, why should we even evangelize then, the problem with the question is that, that it assumes a contradiction where no contradiction exists. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Perhaps some of you know the story of, of William Carey. You know who he was. Today we refer to him as the, the father of the modern day missions movement because of his missionary activity in, in India in the 18th century. Of course, missions existed before Carey, but he is the founder of what we call the modern missions movement. Carey was, was born into an, an Anglican home in England. He was largely self-taught, and he really challenged the view that was prevailing amongst British Baptists of the day, which we would refer to as, as hyper-Calvinism, which stated that God would bring the nations to Christ without any aid or any human intervention. When Carey went to his church board wanting to go to India, the reply he got was this, quote, Young man, when God chooses to save the heathen in India, he will do it without your help. These men in the church saw the sovereignty of God. They realized that God was in control of all things, and they believed in error then that evangelism and missions were unnecessary. This was a tragic error, an error that William Carey recognized. William Carey understood very well that what God determines is something that is also going to happen. If God determines something, God's going to bring it about. But he also realized that the God that determines the ends also determines the means to make it happen. So in this case, if God determined that the people in India would be saved, it is because somebody would care enough to go to them and take the gospel to them. The God that ordains the ends also ordains the means to the end, which is somebody going there and sharing the gospel with them. So yes, on, on one side, yes, God does determine from eternity past the ends. 
But he also determines the means to those ends. And that's really what we have in our text this morning. Verses 14 and 15 is Paul making this logical case. Paul has clearly articulated that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That everyone that believes, in other words, there will not ever be one that wants to respond to the gospel who has faith in Jesus Christ that will not be saved. And of course, we understand that that faith is a response to new birth. Belief isn't something that's conjured up in an individual so that the one who God has given new birth in Christ responds in faith to what Christ has done. And all of this takes place instantly. And the order here is logical, not sequential. But that's how we must understand this. So Paul's point in verse 11 through 13 is that everyone who responds to the gospel in faith will be saved. I mean, grasp that. Everybody that responds to the gospel in faith will be saved. They will be justified, declared right before God. And then what he does is absolutely fascinating. He asks a series of rhetorical questions to show that if people are going to respond to the gospel, they must hear it. And if they're going to hear it, somebody must tell them. This was William Carey's point. If the people in India are going to respond to the gospel, they must hear it. And if they're going to hear it, it's because somebody is going to go to them and tell them about it. This doesn't undo the doctrine of election. It upholds it. I mean, William Carey wasn't disagreeing at all with the doctrine of election. He wasn't disagreeing with Romans 9. He understood that God ordained the fa- God ordained all things that were to come to pass. But unlike the leaders in his church board and the prevailing view in Carey's context, William Carey realized that God also ordained the means to the end. Romans 9 and 10 then must be taken together. Or more accurately, all of Romans must be seen as a collective whole. You can't pick and choose parts of it out of it and make it make sense. We don't pick and choose those elements that we're going to emphasize. When we do that, we emphasize emphasize things wrongly. Namely, at the expense of truth. So to uphold the doctrine of election at the expense of evangelism and missions is a radical mistake with grave consequences. And the grave consequences are this. If nobody goes to them and tells them, they won't come to faith. John Murray said it wonderfully. He said, The main point is that the saving relation to Christ involved a calling upon his name is not something that occurs in a vacuum. It occurs only in a context created by the proclamation of the gospel on the part of those commissioned to proclaim it. Isn't that something? People... Everybody that calls on the name is everybody calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That happens when people go and share the gospel with them. 
That's his point. In other words, people are not going to respond to the gospel if they don't hear it. I mean, it's, it's a logical straight line. How is one going to call on one they have not heard? I mean, it's pretty easy theological truth to grasp. That a person cannot hear the gospel and believe on Christ unless somebody takes the gospel to him or her. In our text, Paul proves this by giving us a series of of linked questions or or statements that lead from a, a person calling on Christ in faith to save them backwards through the process, ending up at the one sent to proclaim the gospel to them. So really what we have here is not, they're not points to a, they're not the series of this point, this point, this sense. We'll call them movements in the text. Paul takes and he moves from here to here in a logical progression. So let's take five movements in the text. Verse 14 speaks of the first, in the first movement here is calling on Christ. This is where he begins, but notice the connection here between verses 13 and 14. Sometimes we are tempted to substitute the word faith or belief in there for call, like you can use them synonymously. Or we think that Paul is using the words interchangeably. Sometimes he's using the word call, sometimes he's using the word belief. If you believe on him, you'll be saved. If you call on him, you'll be saved. It's really the same word for the same thing. Paul has just said in verse 11, quoting from Isaiah, that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So it makes sense. Until you look closely at verse 14. (laughs) How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Two words are not interchangeable. There's a point here. It's interesting. The one who calls on Christ already has faith in Him. They believe. They believe, so they call on Him. We've said this that many times that saving faith is more than just assenting to intellectual intellectual facts, intellectual truths about Jesus. And this really shows that to be true. If one truly believes, they call out to Him to be saved. Remember, Saving faith really consists of three elements. There's an intellectual component. I mean, you must believe in facts. But there's also a personal assent or agreement to those facts. You don't just believe that this happened. You believe that they're true. But that's not enough either. One must not only know facts and agree with them, But lastly, there's a a trust and a personal commitment, a hope that is placed in those facts. So here, when Paul asks the question, how will they call upon him who they have not believed? He's really speaking of that third element here. If one truly believes and trusts that Christ is the remedy for our sin problem, then they will call out to him to be saved. You see the distinction, the distinction here between faith and calling on Christ? The distinction is important in Paul's series of rhetorical questions. If one doesn't have faith in Christ, then they will not call out to him to be saved. 
It's that simple. But let's make it a little more personal. What this movement in the text shows us is that it isn't enough for one to sit under the preaching of God's Word for one to be a Christian. It's good. It's important. I would go so far as to say to sit under the preaching of God's Word is absolutely crucial, but it isn't enough to be a Christian. And what that means is that you can be here you can have sat in services such as this one at Bethel somewhere else for years and years. You could listen to, to great messages, take notes, try to apply to your life what you've learned, but it isn't enough. It isn't enough to know theology, to be a student of the Bible, to know all of the stories, to be able to relate them to other people, to know doctrine, to be able to explain important and complex truths from Scripture, these things do not make you a Christian. The fact is, to be a Christian, you must call upon the name of the Lord in faith. You must, in some fashion, call out to Him, admitting that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself and that you need Jesus to save you from your sin. Now again, Paul is moving backwards so, moving backwards, he then comes to the faith element, or the belief in Christ. So you can't call on Him unless you believe in Him. I think we've really already made this point, but I want you to see it here. That that is, that the one must believe in Christ in order to call on Him. And we've talked about what it means to believe, but here's where this is important. Sometimes we see that outward thing take place. We see the, the calling on Christ. But what we cannot see is if one calls on Him in true faith or not. How can people call on Christ if they do not believe? So believing comes first. But do you see where this can be an issue? Because we only see part of it. I've been in churches or events before, just as many as you have, I'm sure, and, and somebody will give an invitation and then ask the people to, to close their eyes and, and bow their heads or something, and they will ask you to respond. And many times, they want to see a certain response. That's what they're going for. Usually they'll lead in the sinner's prayer or something like that and end up asking for a, a show of hands, if you did that, if you prayed the prayer, if you'd like Jesus to save you, sometimes there's more effort involved than slipping up your hand. It's coming down to the front, praying a prayer, signing a card, whatever it is. All of those things are, are methods of calling on Christ, right? Sometimes at the end of a, a message where people were asked to respond by raising their hands, the speaker will announce, you know, I, six people or 30 people or whatever it was raised their hand and are now saved. That's possible, I'm not saying it's not. My point is that the outward action of raising your hand or whatever it is doesn't always come from a heart of true faith, does it? Sometimes it comes from fear. Sometimes it comes from somewhere else. Sometimes we can't explain what's going on. 
But unless that comes from a heart of true faith, then they're not saved. Henry Ironside was a a pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He described one time a, a flamboyant evangelist that came through his area. The guy's name was Gypsy Smith. He got his name because of his, his gypsy background. And he told many stories about growing up as a, as a gypsy. On one occasion, the whole message was made up of, of these stories of his, of his growing up. And then at the end, he gave an altar call. And, and hundreds of, of people came forward. And Ironside was watching this, and he, and he was wondering what the people were coming forward for. And he said, and I quote, Perhaps they were wanting to be gypsies. I don't know. Ironside's point there was a good one. One of the things that sets Christianity apart from other religions is that Christianity deals with objective facts of history. And unless those facts are proclaimed, and the message, then the message is not Christianity. And unless those facts are understood, and those facts are, are believed in, the faith that follows isn't true faith. Regardless of how it looks in regards to its intensity. One must call on Jesus to be saved. But one must also call, one must also truly believe in order to call on Him. This leads us to the third movement in the text. And this is about hearing Christ. Hearing Christ. Notice what the text says here. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Actually, the ESV as well as the NIV get it wrong here. Because in those translations, they add the little word of in the text, which isn't in the original Greek. A more literal reading would be this. And how are they to believe in the one whom they have not heard? Notice the difference. In one, you're hearing of Christ. In the other, you are hearing Christ. James Boyce makes a lot of this and says, uh, this, he says the, the point is that Christ himself, it is Christ himself who speaks to the individual, and that is hearing him that leads first to belief and then to calling on his name for salvation. At first I thought that he was making a little bit too much of this, but then I got thinking about Jesus' teaching on this subject. In John chapter 10, by the way, it is clear that Jesus is speaking about himself there as the good shepherd. And he said that, that his sheep would know his voice and respond to him. And just listen to that text for a moment. But he who enters by the door is the, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They'll flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. I mean, over and over in that text, right? Jesus speaks, they hear it. I mean, the teaching is is pretty clear, isn't it? He calls the sheep, leads them out, and then goes before them and they follow him. Now, somebody will say, wait a minute. You're saying that these people hear Christ directly. That seems a little bit subjective because we hear people all the time say things like, I feel like God's telling me this. I feel like God's telling me that. So are we adding a subjective element here into the gospel? And I would say absolutely not. Because we need to look at the movements in the text here, specifically the movements both before this and after this. Before this, we see the emphasis on belief. One must know who Christ is. Where do we learn that? In scriptures. We learn, we we must believe what he claimed to put our hope and trust in him. I mean, this has to do with biblical facts, historical realities, not subjective elements. The movement after this has to deal with the preaching of God's word. This means that the word of Christ is not what one makes it out to be. It's not subjective. The word is the content of Christian preaching taught by his appointed preachers. He speaks he speaks through those proclaiming his word. Leon Morris said it this way, Christ is present in the preachers. To hear them is to hear him. Luke chapter 10. You might remember this. You might want to look at it. It's where Jesus sends out the 72 disciples ahead of him to preach in his name. And he says this in verse 16. He who listens to you, listens to me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. To sit under the preaching of God's word is important because in it we hear from Christ himself. Notice why we are referring to these items in in the text as, as movements, not points. They're not five separate items, but they flow. One moves from the next. For instance, you already know what the next movement is, which is preaching Christ. Because the last movement led to this one. And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? At this point, somebody might say, well, preaching is audio. What about tracks? What about written things? Video proclamations of the gospel. The Gideons, for instance, put copies of of Scripture and, and those things in hotel rooms, and people are coming to faith that way. Of course, this isn't saying that that can't happen. I think Leon Morris also makes a great point here when he says that that hearing was a reflection of first century life when few people could read, hence the gospel in every hotel room, and the communication of the day was largely through the spoken word. He says that this doesn't exclude other forms of communication today. Print media, for instance. 
The gospel can be taught by qualified writers as well as qualified preachers. But there's still something special about preaching, and it's through the preaching that God chooses to make the gospel known. Christian books don't take the place of preaching. Can God use them? Absolutely. Preaching still holds a special place. J.F. Packer says it this way. A true sermon is an act of God and not a mere performance by a man. In real preaching, the speaker is the servant of the Word of God and speaks and work and speaks and works led by the led by the word through his servant's lips. The sermon is God's ordained means of speaking and working. The divine commission to ministers is a commission to preach and teach. And the accompanying promise is that if they preach the word faithfully, they will not preach in vain. How are they here without somebody preaching to them? Because it is in preaching that we hear Christ. And when we hear Christ, we respond in in faith and then call on Him for salvation. Of course, this leads us to the fifth and final movement in the text before us, and that is the sending of Christ's messengers. So ultimately, and understanding that the point here is that it is those who call on the name of Jesus they believe in him. They heard the voice of Jesus through the, the preaching. And then they heard this preaching because the preachers were sent. They were Christ's messengers. So somebody preaching to them. Let me say this another way. For Christ to be proclaimed to people that will call on him, these preachers must be sent to them by God. This is God's work. So, for instance, in preparing a message like this, and probably a a response to a message like this, is that we pray Matthew 9.38, right? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice, his harvest, not ours. If it's going to happen, the fields are going to be harvested, it's because he's going to send out people to harvest it. It's going to be because of him. He sends out laborers. We pray and we plead from that, like Paul did in the beginning of Romans 9 and 10. So if God doesn't send out the messenger, the message will not be blessed by him, and those who hear will not be saved. Leon Morris said it this way, that a self-appointed herald or preacher is a contradiction in terms. So that we pray that God would raise up those who would go and, and take the gospel to places that have never heard it before. To people who, who don't know the truth of the gospel. So God raises up messengers and churches then send them out good example of this in Scripture is Paul and Barnabas. They're sent out by the church in Antioch in Acts, in Acts chapter 13. In fact, one of the objectives that Paul has for writing the book of Romans, 
come to chapter 15, starting in verse 23, is that he enlists support of the Roman church to take the gospel beyond Rome to other places such as Spain. So here's the, the application. If those people in unreached areas of the world are to hear the gospel and have an opportunity to come to faith in Christ, then those who know Christ must pool our resources together. What Paul is pleading from the, from the Romans in chapter 15, must pool our resources and send messengers to them to tell them the gospel. This is our task. The fact is, a strong missions program is, a man, is mandatory for any church that longs to be obedient to Jesus Christ. I wonder, who are the laborers in this room? that our church will send off in one way or another to people across the world, to people in our own community. I think the good thing is that there are names that have probably already come to our mind. And we have those in our church who have been greatly involved in missions abroad. They may end up going back. But also, when we pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up messengers, think of what we're praying. Think about who those names could include, because He's the Lord. He's the master of this. And we want Him to, to raise up people, to go to people who have not heard. Those names could include our sons, our daughters, our loved ones. Could include your family. Could include mine. My point is that God has a way of raising up workers to go out into the fields. And we ought to pray for that. And we also ought to support missions because there is not a day that goes by that people die without ever hearing the good news of the gospel. The Getty song that we sing sometimes talks about unnumbered souls that die and pass into the night. Those words ought to break our heart. Paul's words here ought to break our hearts. How are they going to hear without somebody preaching to them? How are people ever going to, be to believe how are they going to call on him for salvation? How are they ever going to even come to faith without somebody going to them? And how are they going to go to them unless they are sent? How can we not think about the ones across the world that we do not know when it comes to a text like this? But also, how can we... <laughs> How can we afford not to think about the ones that we come into contact with all of the time? Perhaps you are sent into your workplace, to your neighborhood, 
to your relatives, to your family, do not know. Because how are they ever going to come to faith without somebody telling them? Sometimes we just assume, well, they must know. They live in America. Everybody here knows the gospel. They have the access to it. But the text says in in rhetorical fashion that that someone is us. I mean, I I think that this text puts a lot of this in our lap. Because how often do we pray that the Lord would send us out into our neighborhood, into the lives of people that we know that don't know the truth of the gospel? Sometimes it's easier to love the pagan on the other side of the world, to give money to support missions, than it is to love the people that we know so much that we're willing to share the truth of the gospel with them. I mean, there's people that we come in contact with all of the time that don't know the gospel. And we're not just talking about the pagan in India. Some face that we see in a magazine. We're talking about faces that we see all of the time when we go to town. That when we go to work all of the time, there are people that we have no idea if they are a believer or not. People that we've known for years and years that we make assumptions about, but we don't know because we've never had that conversation with them. And the question for all of us this morning is, how are they going to hear if somebody doesn't tell them? How are they going to come to faith unless God raises up a messenger and sends them? And the question before us is, who is God sending us to? I mean, think about what this all says about us. You know, if we start thinking about the last time that we had a conversation with the people that we know and love about the gospel, and we say, boy, I don't know if that person's a believer because I haven't talked to them about the gospel, or it's just been a long time since I've talked to that person that I know is lost about the gospel, Doesn't the answer to that question really reveal a lot about us? About our real about our love for them? Do we really love them if we don't share with them? Paul, his story. The beginning of chapter nine, the beginning of chapter ten. I love these people. I love these Jews. These are my people. I pray for them. I pray that they'll be saved. He wasn't just talk. He went. He talked to people. Jews, Gentiles. It didn't matter. Paul walked into the synagogue. You know why? Because he loved these people. And he didn't want to see them die and pass off into the night without knowing Jesus Christ. Because he knew that if somebody didn't tell them, that that is exactly what would happen. Because you can't believe if you've never been told. That's the point. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. 
If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.